Last week, we looked at the disease of pluralism that has struck America, and today I'm not going to be focusing on the pluralism so much as on the kind of actions that Christians need to be taking within a land that is committed to pluralism, how Christians need to be single-minded and avoiding compromising with the world. Now, if you're in the world and you're bombarded with the world and constantly being wooed by the world, it is going to be very, very difficult not to compromise unless you are single-minded. There was a, a saying that I read this past week that it's not enough for a gardener to love flowers, he must also hate weeds. You know, to love the flowers and to love the weeds, that's being double-minded, and yet that is the way many Christians live. They want to be Christians, but they also want to dabble in the world. They want the power of God manifested in their lives, and yet they also want to live a life that denies the power thereof. And when you begin to do that, you're going to have a hard time making the kinds of decisions, um, principal decisions that are mentioned here. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. God says we must be single-minded towards him. Now, we're going to be seeing in a little bit that there are tremendous benefits to being single-minded, but I want to begin by saying that there are disadvantages to being a Christian. There are disadvantages to being single-minded. Christ, any time that he talked to the crowds, he made those crowds count the cost of discipleship, which meant some of them were going to wander away from him. They were not going to follow. And I see Daniel is doing the same thing. He paints a very realistic picture of what it means to be a Christian. He paints a picture that shows there will be opposition. Uh, Not everything is going to be hunky-dory. In verses 8 through 15, we see that single-mindedness, first of all, troubles the world. It troubles the world, and we can expect the same kinds of reactions. Take a look at verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. A question comes up, why were these Chaldeans not minding their own business? Why were they butting their nose in these guys' affairs? I mean, what was it to them if these people didn't bow down? Just let Nebuchadnezzar deal with that. But uh, we are not told exactly why, if it was envy, if it was hatred, if they were feeling conviction over their own lack of integrity. But for some reason, they came and they felt it necessary to tell on these three men. And they obviously knew Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They knew their names. They knew their jobs. They knew where they were uh, at. And uh, so it's not an issue of um, these people uh, being totally unaware and all of a sudden finding out what was happening. There was a pastor who told a story on another pastor, uh, and it's probably apocryphal, but he said uh, this other pastor really has got a poor memory. Uh, He said uh, during his sermon, he couldn't remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He kept stumbling over that. So his wife tells him, why don't you just write it on a piece of paper and have it in front of you when you come to that part? So he did that. And when he comes to that part of the sermon, he pulls out of his pocket his little slip of paper and reads uh, Hart, Schaffner, and Marx, uh, clothiers. Uh, (laughs) Same race, but uh, different people. these, that was not the situation here. These guys knew Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Take a look at verse 12. They not only knew their names, they knew a great deal about them. There are certain Jews whom you have set, so they know they're Jews, first of all, whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, so they knew their position, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, so they know their names there, 
And furthermore, they know that these men have been praying with their eyes open. They must have been praying with their eyes open as well. They go on and say, uh, These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Now, the fact that they didn't bow down to the image, that's obvious. Anybody could tell that. But the fact that they knew some of these other things, how did they know that they didn't serve any of the other gods? How did they know their names and some of these other issues? It's clear to me that these three men were being watched by the world. They were being watched very carefully. There was a young man in Tennessee who told how he had been watched this one time. He had preached a sermon on the text, Thou shalt not steal. And the next day he got onto a bus and... uh, Gave the driver a dollar, got his change, went to the back of the bus and was counting it, and he noticed there was uh, 10 cents too much that he'd gotten back. And he thought, ah, why make a big deal about it? They're not even going to notice, Uh, don't want to make a fuss about this. But he was convicted, no, it's money that doesn't belong to me. So he walks to the front of the bus and he tells the driver, you gave me too much change. And the driver says, I know, 10 cents too much. I did that on purpose. You see, I went to your service yesterday and heard you preach, and I was watching in the mirror while you were counting your change, and if you hadn't brought that dime back, I would never have trusted another one of your sermons. Now imagine the tragedy that could have happened in that person's life if he had made the wrong decision. Your very presence in society carries with it a certain degree of influence. The world notices what you do. They notice They're on guard. They're wanting to pick and find the faults that they can with you. Some people are not going to like the things that they see in your lives. Others may be won by it, but you can count on the fact that they will notice how you live. These Chaldeans had noticed several things about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, First of all, they noticed their holiness. There must have been a certain consistency about their lives. Uh, They noticed that there was a total lack of idolatry, They noticed boldness for the Lord. They noticed that these men were not men who were influenced by peer pressure, not influenced by threats to their jobs or to their lives. And it bothered them, perhaps because their own lives lacked that kind of integrity, and maybe they felt convicted. Maybe there was envy. Maybe there was something else. But clearly, the Scripture says they were bothered. They were bothered by what they saw. Nebuchadnezzar was troubled too. Take a look down there at verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Some of you have experienced the anger of others because of the stands that God has had you take. Sometimes you don't even have to say anything. The very fact that you are living differently bothers other people. I had a a mainline uh, Presbyterian pastor one time just get incensed with me. I thought we were having a civil uh, discussion, and uh, he didn't agree with the fact I held to the inerrancy of Scripture. And he says, oh, you're putting God into a box. And I says, no, I'm not putting God in a box. That's what God has said. I'm restricting my views by what God has said. Boy, was he ticked off. And I says, now, why would it make you so upset that I'm just saying I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? He says, well, if you take the Bible literally, that means you think I'm going to hell. See, he was convicted. He was convicted of his rebellion against the Lord, but was not wanting to do anything about it. It troubles the world. And so there are disadvantages for leading a consistent life, for being single-minded. But I think the advantages far outweigh the disadvantages. Throughout this passage, we see three men who are able to make stands 
without feeling the need to waver in the least. Would you like to be able to do that in your lives? I know there's a lot of people who struggle over this. For many years, I had struggles on taking stands that were unpopular and feeling like, boy, I sure feel like compromising on this because there's so much pressure externally. If you are not single-minded, you're not going to have the wherewithal within to be able to stand up when the going gets tough. And I think it's something all of us, including you young kids, need to think about. You kids, do you make some of the decisions uh, in your lives based on the fact that everybody is doing it? I've heard this uh, before. Mommy, Daddy, why should we have to do this? Everybody else is not doing this. Or why can't we do this? What's so bad about it? Everybody's doing it. But, you know, we need to begin to make our decision-making. Of course, our kids wouldn't do that, would you? (laughs) But... All of us need to make our decision-making based upon what God wants, what God desires in our lives, being sensitive to His leading, not so much what the world is looking for and asking for. And if we don't start making those decisions at a very young age, like the children did in chapter 1 of Daniel, we're not going to be able to be at the place of making those decisions in chapter 3 when we're older. Take a look at verse 7, where everybody's doing something different than what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were doing. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, and symphony with all kinds of music, get this next phrase, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Some people feel enormous pressure from peer pressure, enormous desires to change because they are not single-minded in their focus. It's a real weak area in their lives. Uh, they listen to the satanic lyrics in, in rock, uh, some of the rock music, the satanic rock music, because they want to feel in. Uh, they don't want their friends to think that they're weird or something. Or maybe they'll dress like punkers or look bored in class, uh, even though they're maybe interested, but they wouldn't want to let on to their uh, peers that they're interested because that's not cool. Uh, there's so many different ways in which we can be influenced by our world, and we need to, from start to finish, in our thoughts, our actions, whether we eat or drink, everything that we do, we need to be doing it to the glory of God, based upon what He wants from us. And when God is at the center of our lives, it doesn't bother us what other people think, even if they disagree with us. You see, our focus has to be right. Now, we've already read in verses 8 through 12 of how unpopular these three were in the eyes of some others, and we need to take unpopular stands, even if it means we're going to be rejected in certain circles. And being single-minded enables you to take unpopular stands like these three men did. Uh, Recently, the uh, governor of Alabama has been in the news because of the unpopular stand that he's taken. Uh, If you're not familiar with it, there were uh, the dispute between two judges. One judge has insisted that uh, another judge has to remove the Ten Commandments uh, from his courtroom. And he said, as Judge Moore, I believe is his name, he said, no, I'm not going to do it. And uh, so there are some who are trying to use force to get those Ten Commandments uh, removed. And the governor of Alabama, he has stepped in and he said that he would use force to repel any of those unconstitutional advances. 
And it's a very unpopular stand. And when there's a Meshach like that who takes a stand for the Lord, there needs to be Abednego's and there need to be others who will stand with him. Uh, Randall Terry, I praise the Lord, he's uh, said on the radio that there's an 800 number that people can call and give donations to Judge Moore's Legal Defense Fund. He's saying there's so many people who stand in the gap like that and everybody abandons them. We can't do that. We need to be there uh, to support them. There are others who take such stands right here locally. Omaha for Decency has uh, had a long and a lonely stand against pornography in, in our culture. And pornography is such a vicious vice. It is destroying our culture. And yet there are so few people who are willing to take stands with the Don Coles and others in our culture, Denny Hartford and Vital Signs Ministries, and there are other organizations. Uh, another person who's been in the news recently, and there's been some misinformation communicated uh, about him, but Larry Donlan, uh, with his picket at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lincoln. Uh, you've maybe read a little bit about that in the uh, newspaper. They've uh, just inst- uh, inaugurated, however what the word is, an elder who is an abortionist uh, into their session. And uh, he has talked with the abortionist seeking to bring repentance there. He's talked to the pastor. He's talked to the elders. He's talked to the uh, presbytery that's responsible and no actions whatsoever. So what they did is they had a silent peaceful picket, but they had also leafleted the, uh, the the various cars that were there. Now, apparently, there must be at least a remnant of Christians in that congregation, because there were many people who came out and thanked them for exposing the evil that was there, even brought cookies and, and, um, and punch out to them. But there are people who are taking stands, and you may have your own unpopular stands that God may call you to, but we must be single-minded for the Lord before we will be able be, be, being able to take those stands without wavering. I think we tend to be men-pleasers, and I speak for myself. That was an area that I had struggled with for years, being a man-pleaser. And God says, no, I want your focus to be on what I think, not so much on what other people think. Uh, point three, would you like to be able to make the right decision, even if it meant that your job was on the line? I mean, that's uh, at least the minimum of what would have happened in verse 12. These guys come up and accuse him and says, there are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. They're not fit for the job is what they're implying. And they may further be implying, you know, we wouldn't mind having those jobs once they get demoted. And there will be people who will take advantage of your stands for the Lord to try to advance themselves in this dog-eat-dog world. And being single-minded will enable you to make the right decisions, even if it means you may be out on the street the next day. Uh, some people can handle that. They say, oh, I don't have any worries about that. I can handle that pressure. I can handle the previous two pressures. But the thing that gets me is uh, when I'm being yelled at and verbally abused. And these three men are on the hot seat in verses 13 through 15. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, and he's probably here trembling with anger, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? And I think there's a degree of self-control he's showing here because there's at least two other references, one in Jeremiah, one outside of Scripture, indicating in similar circumstances he didn't even wait. He just toasted them. But he must have valued these three men. They must have been extremely gifted, and he didn't want to lose them. So he tries to manipulate them and get them to change their minds. And so in verse 15 it says, 
Now, if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? That is a real pressure that some people face. In fact, some people say they would almost rather face the fiery furnace than face verbal abuse and the kind of hostility that these men did. Different personalities, you know, are affected in different ways. But that can be something that really makes people compromise. It may be your job, it may be somebody else, but if you're to handle it properly, you've got to already have in place a single-mindedness toward the Lord. Now, I should point out, you don't have to have a special personality. Some people might think, man, these guys must have been hard, you know, to be able to stand up like that. But you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, and you will find frail women and children who are able to stand up to the emperor for the sake of the gospel and do things that their personality and their own human resources were not able to do. It was God's grace working through them. And of course, verses um, 15 and following deal with uh, uh, points 5 and 6, single-mindedness enables us to do what is right when our life is on the line and when God and truth are questioned. If your daily focus has not been single-minded to please the Lord, to serve Him, to obey Him, then decision-making is going to become much more difficult and you're going to begin to have broader and broader areas of compromise, sort of like uh, some of the mainline pastors that I have talked with. They've had so many years of incremental compromises. After a while, they have a hard time discerning what is truth, what is not truth, what are things we should stand for, and almost comes to a place where they're not willing to take a stand on anything if it means losing their pension or losing anything else. And so I urge you, right from the outset, you've got to be determined, Lord, I want to be single-minded for you. I want to see things in black and white. I want to follow what your scripture says, no matter what the world thinks. So we've seen that single-mindedness troubles the world. Secondly, it steadies the believer. Praise God. And then thirdly, it exalts God. And really, it's nothing more and nothing less than being God-centered in our, our thinking, our words, and our actions. And I'm going to end with three examples of how the church in our century, I believe, has compromised. And we're going to start, uh, first of all, in verse 16. It's the area of conscience, where we are not God-centered. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, he's been trying to manipulate them and get them to change, but they cannot be changed because God alone is the Lord of their conscience. Now, that is a critical, critical issue. Not even the king can command their conscience. Colossians 2.15 says, Let no one judge you in food or in drink, he talks about uh, festivals and holy days and different things like that. He says, let no one judge you. And he goes on in verse 21, he gives some examples of how those Judaizers had been judging and binding their conscience. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. Paul says, don't be listening to all of those laws that are external to the Bible. He says, your consciences must be bound by the Bible and by the Bible alone. Why? Well, if that's not the case, we're going to be tossed to and fro, we're not going to be able to take stands like they did. In fact, I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 4. Take a look at one passage there. 
1 Corinthians 4, in verse 2 of, uh, of this chapter, uh, he talks about how as stewards, we are accountable to God, we're responsible to God, and it's required of us that we be faithful. So our consciences can be bound in a certain sense. But then he goes on in verse 3 and says, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. It's very easy for our consciences to begin to be troubled by what other people think of us, and even for our own minds to be accusing and, uh, and troubling our hearts, even when they're not uh, biblical issues. And Paul says our consciences must be held captive by the Word of God and the Word of God alone, or they will never be free. Now, can you say what Paul said in verse 3 there? That it's really a little thing for you. Uh, for uh, what, whether other people judge you or whether you're even judged by a human court. See, most people can't say that. In fact, I've run across people who have had bad consciences over the strangest things. I've known a Christian who was troubled in his conscience that he had become a Christian, and he knew it was the right decision to make, but it's because his family was so opposed to his being a Christian. His conscience was held captive by man rather than by the Word of God. I've known people who have felt guilty for believing a particular doctrine or going to a particular church or having more children than their parents thought that they ought to have or getting married to the person their parents disapproved of. Again, their consciences were not held captive by God and what God thought, but by what the world thought of them. And that is a critical thing that we have got to settle that the Lord alone can be Lord of our conscience. That was the rallying cry at the time of the Reformation, and I think it needs to be the rallying cry today. At the very time when people ignore God's laws, they find themselves bound in legalism to the traditions of man. Now, there are two extremes people can go to on the conscience issue. Uh, some people have taken that phrase, let no man judge you, uh, to indicate not only that they're free from the doctrines of men, but that they're free from the doctrines of Scripture. Oh, well, you know, that's, that's not something everybody agrees on. We don't have to follow that. And they're not willing to study what the Scripture has to say. And Paul makes it very clear, God is Lord of our conscience. In fact, the only way we're going to have liberty in our conscience is if we submit our consciences to the perfect law of liberty. That's what James calls it, the perfect law of liberty. Now, on the other hand, there are people who go to the other extreme, and they flaunt their liberties. And the reason many times that they flaunt their liberties is because they feel bad that others are disapproving, and they're trying to convince these guys that they need to approve. These three men did not feel the need to do either. God was so much Lord of their conscience, they were willing to die for the Lord, but they did not flaunt it. They did not try to convince Nebuchadnezzar uh, of where they were at. Uh, because why? Nebuchadnezzar was not the Lord of their conscience. We have no need to answer you concerning this matter. You know, the Pharisees tried to bind Christ's conscience over the food he ate and over the wine that he drank. They called him a glutton and a wine-bibber. And the and fascinating thing about it, you know, if it had been me, I would have been trying to defend myself. He didn't see any need to defend himself. Why? Because they are not Lord of his conscience. And we need to come to the place where we can give this testimony. We have no need to answer you concerning this matter. We feel free because our conscience is bound by God alone. Now, if they judge me from the word of God, then by all means, I will change. I will repent because I want righteous judgment. I want God's word to bind my conscience because that's when we have pure and perfect liberty. 
So the conscience issue, I think, is, is a, a real critical issue that flows out of the single-mindedness. The second test of how God-centered we are is who we look to for salvation. Look at verse 17. <clears throat> First half of the verse deals with their physical salvation, their deliverance from the furnace. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. They're not saying that he will for sure. He's able to do it. Second half deals with even if he doesn't deliver us from the fiery furnace, he will deliver us into glory out of your hand. You have no control out of our, for our, over my eternal destiny, he says, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. And I tell you, when you have that sense of your eternal security in God, it can give you a perspective that enables you to face problems and face difficulties in life. And yet, what's the first thing that Christians do when they get into trouble? They don't look to the Lord. We're like Jacob. We're scheming. How do I get out of this mess? We're looking to our own resources. We're looking to the resources of other people. And uh, we ought not uh, to be doing that. When fire threatens your marriage, where do you turn? Do you believe that God is able to deliver you? When fire threatens the state, where do you turn? So many times we turn to alternative saviors and to the God, uh, the God of the Bible. And uh, we need to be looking to the Lord. He alone is our Savior in life and in death, in the church when it lacks finances or when we run out of steam in any other area. We need to be going to the Lord. And I think so many times we compromise in this area. Uh, we go to the doctor. We get medicine. We take our medicine. We never once pray about it. When you go to the doctor, you need to say, Lord, give them wisdom. Enable this medicine to do its good work in me because you alone are my Savior for my body. Uh, when you drive, you need to be going to the Lord and saying, Lord, in spite of my skills, in spite of the fact I'm going to do the best I can in my driving, I know you alone can deliver me on the highway. Uh, we have so many alternatives. One of the early church fathers, John Chrysostom, was brought before the emperor and was commanded to renounce Christ. And the emperor threatened him by saying that if he did not renounce Christ, he'd be banished from the land of his fathers and never be able to return. Uh, and uh, John responded, you cannot. The whole world is my father's land. You cannot banish me. The emperor then said, I will take away all your property and treasures. John replied, you cannot, for all my true treasures are in heaven. The emperor then said, I will send you to a place of absolute solitude where there is not one friend for you to talk to. John says, you cannot, for I have a friend that is closer than a brother to me. He is my elder brother, Jesus Christ, who has promised to always be with me. In anger and frustration, the emperor then said, I will then take your life. John says, you cannot, for my life is forever hidden in Christ with God. That is being absolutely single-minded with respect to who is our Savior. There are some who trust in princes. There are some who trust in their wealth. There are others who trust in their physical stamina. But we will trust in the Lord our God. He alone should be our Savior. And if you have come up with alternative saviors that you have looked to, you need to repent of that and turn to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm trusting you in this problem. The third and the final test of how single-minded we are is in the area of worship. Take a look at verse 18. But if not, 
In other words, if we're not delivered from the fiery furnace, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Nothing could move them from worshiping in spirit and in truth. They were not about to use some of the mental deception that people sometimes use about those other things. You know, it's my attitude, my motives that are right. No, they said how we worship is important. Our motives are important. Our standards, our goals, all are important because we want to please the Lord in our worship. And so they weren't thinking so much about what they desired and uh, and what others were thinking, but what about God desired and what God was thinking. Where is the focus for your worship. David Wells, in his book, No Place for Truth, indicts the American church as being so man-centered and self-absorbed. He says, we are a consumer-oriented society, and even our shopping for churches is shopping based upon our consumer-oriented desires. He says, sometimes we talk about being faithful to the Lord and our commitment to God. We talk about truth and things like that, but they're really pretty low priorities in the totem pole. What's really of priority in the way people look is what I desire, what is convenient for me, what satisfies me. You know, if it's a half-hour drive across town, oh, that's too much of a sacrifice for me to take. And uh, they look at our preferences and what is emotionally pleasing to me. But none of those types of things move these men at this point. And the reason was it had not been moving them previously in their worship. If they had been moved previously, they would not have been able to stand for the Lord when their worship was attacked. See, God's principle, and it's a principle I believe applies to every area of life, including worship, is that when we begin by seeking first our own satisfaction and our own welfare, we're going to end up last. First shall be last, the last shall be first. And uh, we're not going to be satisfied in the worship. We're going to be hopping from church to church, uh, never finding what we're looking for. But when we put God first and foremost, and we're seeking to give Him pleasure, seeking to give Him satisfaction in our worship, it's at that point that God puts us first. Suddenly we find ourselves ironically satisfied in the worship. And so I think this is a principle that we need to lay hold of in life, no matter whether the the circumstances are pleasant or unpleasant. When we are single-minded, we can have joy in our worship. And I'm convinced that one of the greatest hindrances to worship does not come from the style of music, from the size of the church, from the emotional depth of that worship service, from aesthetics or from any other external uh, external issue. It comes from being single-minded to the Lord because the Lord God has stirred up our hearts by the presence and the power of His Holy Spirit with us. If His Spirit is stirring us toward worship, some of the externals are great, but they're not essential. And in the discussion questions I have in your boxes uh, for your home groups and for your families, uh, I give some examples of that where worship was not always a, a very emotionally pleasing thing. You look at Isaiah 6, and you'll see it was a pretty distressing thing for Isaiah to be worshiping in that context. And yet, it was single-minded. It was focused on the Lord. And you can see this passage covers a huge range of territory. It shows us that God's will is not always to give us free, trouble-free lives. But when we are single-minded, God is exalted, we are steadied, and the cause of Christ goes forward in a way that it never would when we are double-minded.
and never would. And so my prayer for you this morning is the Spirit of God would be working in your heart, stirring you up to be God-focused, so God-focused and single-minded. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. You will be making the right decisions, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. Amen.